0: All right, well, for our time of the word this morning, I'm actually going to give you one of the messages from the conference uh, from Spain, so you can tape your Bibles, still open them in Matthew, but Matthew 16. On Sunday mornings, we're normally going through the gospel of Matthew, and we're pretty close to finishing the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, but that's going to wait one more week. Got back from Spain pretty late this past week, knew I wasn't going to have time to prepare a new message from scratch in Matthew 7. But I thought it would be fitting to still give you one of the conference messages from Spain. And that would be Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I think it's safe to jump that far ahead in Matthew because at the rate we're going, we're not going to be in Matthew 16 for many years. <laughs> but this is one of the verses I was asked to preach on for the conference. The theme of that conference was the building of the church. Matthew 16, 18 is one of the most foundational verses on of the building of the church and the church itself. It's where Jesus says, I will build my church. It's also the main verse Catholics use to support the pap- uh, papacy, or papacy, believing Jesus here makes Peter the first pope. You can see how relevant that subject matter would be to Spaniards, as Spain is predominantly a Catholic country. I uh, Granted, Spain has seen the rise of secularism like all of Europe, only that the elderly still seem religiously devout, But still, a great majority of Catholics identify as, or Spaniards rather, identify as Catholics, even if they're not practicing. Christianity and Judaism rose early in Spain in the early church history. Both were ended, though, by the Islamic invasion in the 8th century. They took over the whole Iberian Peninsula. But the Muslims were fully expelled by the end of the 15th century by Catholic forces. And the Catholics were sure to guard this territory thereafter against Muslims, Jews, and later Protestants. The Spanish Inquisition made quick work of all of these minority religious groups. And they successfully kept the Protestant Reformation out of Spain. Which explains why still today a a non-Catholic or a Protestant Christian makes up just less than 1% of the Spanish population. The Reformation, we might say, is, is old news to us. It's not groundbreaking for us to say that the Pope is not the head of the church or the foundation of the church. But for many in that culture, it's something that needs to be said, something for some that they might be hearing for the first time. And with that in mind, Matthew sixteen eighteen is the perfect passage to demonstrate from Scripture itself what is the church, who is its head, what is its foundation, now, I trust it's probably not new information for us, but still, these are truths we ought not take for granted. We had better not take for granted knowing the head and the foundation of the church. Now, regarding, to, regarding the church, I wonder what, what comes to your mind when you hear the word church? I think for a lot of people, the first answer would be a building. Especially in Europe, with all that history, churches are marked by these magnificent buildings. Well, I hope you know the church is not a building. Scripture never associates the church with a building. And when the Bible talks about the building of the church, it has nothing to do with brick and mortar. Rather, the building of the church is all about the expansion of God's kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. And that kingdom really has nothing to do with buildings. In April 2019, a massive fire broke out in the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris the spire collapsed, most of the roof was destroyed. But you know that even if Notre Dame totally fell to the ground, God's kingdom would be unaffected. That's because his kingdom is not of this world, has nothing to do with bricks and stones. Or take our own church building after all the work we've done all these years. Imagine you come here next Sunday morning and the whole thing is burned to the ground. Some might see that as Satan prevailing over the church, but But that's nonsense, because the church is not this building. The church is the people of God, and while buildings can burn, there's no force available that can prevail against Christ's church. And the real church he's building can't be torn down. Now, this is not an anti-building sermon. (laughs) We're very thankful for the physical structure that we have. It's useful for fellowship, worship, ministry, But as we come to study Matthew 16, 18 this morning, we need to learn what the real building of the church is all about. Matthew 16, especially for us, since we're jumping so far ahead in Matthew's gospel, you should know it takes us to a pivotal turning point in Christ's ministry. You already know that his ministry culminates with his death and resurrection. That's like the Mount Everest of the gospels. But that would make Matthew 16 like base camp. from here on out, we start ascending up the mountain to the cross. With Matthew 16, Jesus has entered his third and final year of ministry. Before that, he'd been traveling around Palestine as an itinerant preacher, but now he has a clear destination in mind. The cross is in sight. In fact, up to this point, Jesus has never revealed to his disciples his impending death and resurrection, but that changes now, here in Matthew 16, as his work comes into focus, it's time for his true identity to come into focus. That's going to happen now. This, this whole chapter, Matthew 16, is full of what we might call pregnant verses. But Matthew 16, 18 gives us the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. And as we see the cross come into focus, so do the people of the cross, which would be the church. Indeed, down in verse 24, Jesus is going to tell us that we must pick up our own cross to follow him. And so let's let's go ahead and read and hear how Jesus identifies his people whom he will call the church. Just one verse, Matthew 16, verse 18. You can listen as I read where Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Our goal this morning is simply to reflect on what Jesus means when he says, I will build my church and all of its implications. This is going to have a lot to do with the context, specifically verses 13 through 17. But we'll come back to that. We'll just jump right into verse 18 to begin with. And to add some structure, I want to address four questions to help you understand the building of the church. The real building of the church. Four questions to help you understand the building of the church. Of the church. And it's okay to start basic. Question one What is the church? What is the church? It's a basic but vital question of definitions. How do we define the church? Jesus says here, saying for the first time in the New Testament, this word church, I will build my church. The word for church in the Greek is ekklesia, which some of you know means literally the called out ones, those who've been called out from the world. Now before Jesus, this word "Ecclesia" was used to speak of any group, any assembly. It did not have a religious association. But the apostles later started using this as a technical term for the assembly of Christ' followers. And so it caught on. Ecclesia became the Christians, those who followed Jesus, called out to assemble and follow Christ. And that's still the definition we have today. The church is simply the, the gathering, the collection of all true believers. In Jesus Christ. This church is universal in nature. It's not bound to any geographical location. Nor is it restricted to one ethnicity or nation. Like Israel. Now God is calling out believers in Christ. From all over the world. And that is the church. That being said. This church though universal. Is meant to find local geographical expressions in this age. Which is why in the New Testament. You hear of them speaking of the church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem the church of Rome, the local churches. It is God's desire for the church in this age that believers would regularly gather with one another in their local areas to assemble locally for worship. and We call that the local church. Now, when trying to define the church, it's uh, also helpful to discuss when the church began. Some believe the church began with, with Adam or Abraham. But what does the Bible say? You'll notice here in verse 18, that Jesus himself still views this thing called church as future. He says, I will build my church in the future tense. He does not say, I have built my church or I am building my church. But very interestingly, he views this thing he calls the church as yet to be, as something still future. The church is a future reality at that point, which makes sense because scripture clearly reveals that the church is the people of the new covenant, which would not begin until a little bit after this. Israel was the people of the old covenant. Now the church, more specifically, is the people of the new covenant. That new covenant was inaugurated on the cross by his blood and came to formally begin by the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so with the coming of that spirit, the church began. It's just like 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen affirms, which says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, speaking of Jew and Greek, the church is not a national entity. As the old covenant came to fulfillment in Christ, this dividing wall that separated the two was torn down. And so as a result, these two groups, Jew and Gentile, could come together as one new man. And that's exactly how Paul describes the church in Ephesians 2.15. He calls it one new man, this union of, of all believers. So you put it all together. The church is the collection of all believers in Jesus Christ called out from the world. They are the the spirit-filled, Christ-centered, new covenant community. Now, let's move on to a second question here that emerges from the text. Who is the head of this church? Who is the head of the church? It's a very important question, which we thankfully see easily answered from scripture. Again, you know this. I trust there's no doubt in your mind that Christ is the sole head of the church. Not Peter, not the Pope, but Jesus alone. Again, verse 18, he says, I will build my church. He does not say the church or your church. It's his church. The church belongs to him because he bought it. He paid the price for it. His own blood. He owns it. The church in every respect derives its life. From Christ, He is the sole head. A pair of verses in Ephesians uh, affirm this: Ephesians 1, 2 through twenty-three. It says how so God put all things in subjection under His feet, Christ, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. Ephesians five twenty-three adds that just as the husband is the head of the wife. Uh, As Christ also, or it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. New Testament uses several metaphors to describe this relationship between Christ and the church. Every single one of them reinforces his headship. You've got the top five: the church is the body, Christ is the head. The church is the bride, Christ is the groom. The church is the building, Christ is the cornerstone. The church is the flock. Christ is the shepherd. And the church is the uh, branch. Christ is the vine. All these metaphors have something important to say about the unity of the church. But more importantly, they teach the Christ-centeredness of the church. Any church, any expression of the church that's not Christ-centered is not biblical. Jesus is the head. What does this term headship even indicate? Briefly, Headship indicates direction, that the body follows the head. Headship indicates honor, that the head is above the body. And headship indicates authority, that the body submits to the head. All the privileges of headship, rightly attributed to Jesus, rightly belong to Jesus. This means the church should be looking to Jesus for all rule, authority, guidance, direction, But that brings up a question, though, because Jesus ascended. He's not here with us in bodily form. We don't see him. So if he's the head of this body called the church, how can he govern his body if he's in heaven? Well, this is where Catholics teach through the Pope, who they call the vicar or representative of Christ. And they believe in this verse... You have Jesus transferring his headship to Peter and all future bishops of Rome, popes, as his representative, making them singularly and solely the the supreme ruler of the church in Christ's place while he's ascended. Now, Catholics pay lip service to the headship of Jesus. They say he is the invisible heavenly head, and they call the pope the visible earthly head. But it's kind of like this. Remember when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? According to Catholic theology, essentially, if you've seen the Pope, you've seen Jesus. That's kind of the same thing. The Pope is entrusted with the same authority and headship as Jesus himself. And they use our text, Matthew 16, 18, along with verse 19 for support. Now, my grandmother was a staunch Catholic who immigrated to America from Italy. I know many of you have Catholicism in your background as well. And just honoring the Pope. Is deeply ingrained part of their culture. But you should know that the, the papacy is completely unbiblical. In no way was Christ's rule or headship or authority being given to Peter in any singular soul special fashion. Which was then meant to be passed down perpetually to other bishops of Rome, i.e. Uh, the Pope. I would challenge you to show me where the Bible teaches that. It comes from man's tradition, not God's word. But... Just to talk about Peter for a quick moment, since he's featured in this text, again, Catholics believe that in Matthew 16, Jesus is making Peter the foundation of the church and the head of the church. He's assigning his headship to Peter, but that is not the case. We'll come back and talk about the foundation of the church shortly, but you realize that there's no evidence of Peter's headship over the other apostles or even the church in the rest of the New Testament. Really, when you examine it, the rest of the New Testament, it's pretty clear Peter was no head of this new church. In one example, take Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. This is when the church, the early church, had to deal with its first big test. This big issue, namely Gentile inclusion in the church. Should all these Gentiles be accepted into the church? And should they be required to keep the law of Moses to enter? It says in Acts 15 is is Paul and Barnabas who sparked this debate because they saw these Gentiles coming to salvation. And this is a debate, it says, among the apostles and elders of Jerusalem. Now, in response to this, Acts 15, Peter did testify how he witnessed Gentile conversion. But really, it was the apostle James who settled the matter. He testified that the prophets foresaw Gentile inclusion in the people of God. He declared this, Acts 15, 19, James says, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And then verse 22 said, this teaching seemed good to the apostles and the elders. And so they sent a letter to all the churches on behalf of the apostles and all the elders. Really, this is a huge deal. This is the first big test of church doctrine and nobody was looking to Peter. To just settle the matter. To speak ex-cathedra and just answer. He was not functioning as their head or supreme leader. He had no special authority. You see all the apostles along with the elders of the Jerusalem church on equal footing figuring this out. If anyone was leading them, it really was the apostle James. And Peter certainly was not infallible. Later in Galatians chapter 2, you recall how the apostle Paul had to rebuke Peter for his sin. He had been playing the, the hypocrite, showing partiality to Jewish Christians and showing uh, a sinful uh, partiality towards, a uh, prejudice toward Gentile Christians. But just, just listen to Peter himself. When you read 1 Peter, Peter's letter, how does Peter view himself, his own role, as some pope, supreme leader, head of the church? No. Rather, 1 Peter 5.1. He, he says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you, As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says in verse 4 that when the chief shepherd appears, Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter, even though he was an apostle, still viewed himself humbly as just a fellow elder. He knew that he was not the chief shepherd of the church, he was not made the vicar of Christ on earth. Rather, he was just one among many under shepherds, apostles, or elders called to submit to the headship of Christ and lead his church. Look, we know it is true that Jesus delegated some of his authority to church leaders. That is true. But he did not give this authority to Peter in any special or singular way. It was really given to all the apostles and thereafter all church elders. Catholics believe that the papacy and apostolic secession are necessary to be infallible guides for the church. Jesus is gone. Who will guide us? Who will tell us what to do? Well, the Pope is the answer. But to the contrary, Jesus used his apostles to write an inspired New Testament. And this New Testament was meant to be that infallible guide for the church now that Christ is ascended. Hence, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, uh, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped or adequate, equipped for every good work. I mean, Scripture is what we need. Scripture is what the Lord left behind to be the guide for his people while he is ascended. Scripture is inspired and infallible men are not, which is why Paul is able to say, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what we need, the words of Christ. I know it can be hard for those coming from a Catholic background to challenge the authority of the Pope. I mean, among those people and those cultures, he's He's venerated, worshipped, essentially, given so much honor and authority and respect. How can so many people be wrong? The answer is because they're not being governed by scripture alone. You don't want to be like those in the previous chapter of Matthew, Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, verse 6, Jesus rebuked those who invalidate the word of God for the sake of their traditions. It's what the, the, uh, the Jews were doing, the Pharisees. Catholics have made the exact same mistake. It's enough to say for now that, that we must be guided by scripture alone. It contains everything we need for life, for godliness. That's where we find everything our, our head, our groom, our cornerstone, our shepherd, our vine has given to us that we might know him and abide in him and follow him. So although this is old news to us, may we never forsake the true head of the church. We need to follow Christ. Now, onto to a third question. What is the foundation of the church? What is the foundation of the church? And this is probably the most important question that needs to be answered from this text. What is the foundation of the church? We need to address head on what Jesus means when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Verse 18. A famous saying. And here, just as Catholics teach that the Pope is the head of the church, they likewise see Peter as the foundation. Peter is the rock on which the church is built, i.e., that the Pope. Is that what this means? It's all based on this one phrase. What does this mean? Again, look at verse 18. Christ says, I say to you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so our question here is what is the rock? What is this rock on which the church is built? Is it Peter himself or is it something else? Well, here we can't answer this question apart from the context. This verse does not exist in a vacuum. So now is a good time to go back and study the context. So look back at verse 13. Really the beginning of this passage, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Jesus and his disciples have followed the Jordan River 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a city called Caesarea Philippi. And he took them there to escape the crowds on purpose. He wanted alone time with the 12. And there he he starts questioning them about his identity. It was obvious that he's more than a carpenter's son, but like how much more? Who is he? Now, the answer to us, if you read Matthew's gospel, it's no mystery in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 tells us he's the Messiah. The virgin birth tells us he's God with us. He's the divine Messiah. His baptism tells us he's God's beloved son. Even the demons testify, you're the holy one of God. So you read Matthew's gospel, like we, we already know who Jesus is. But the human characters at the time don't understand this yet. With his glory being veiled, they did not immediately recognize him as the divine Messiah. In fact, back in Matthew 12, the religious leaders hated Jesus so much, they accused him of being Satan incarnate, not God incarnate. But here, Jesus wants to know first what the people think about his true identity. Like, what's what's the word on the street? Who, who do the people say that I am? In verse 14, the disciples answer, they say, Some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so apart from the religious leaders, the people clearly believe Jesus was someone special. Maybe he is John the Baptist risen from the dead. How do you explain the miracles? Or maybe he's one of the great prophets. But all these views of Jesus still fall short because they leave Jesus in the category of forerunner, not fulfillment. Elijah, John, they were forerunners of the Messiah, but they were not the Messiah. So the people had a high view of Jesus, but not high enough. They did not recognize him as their own divine Messiah. But now Jesus wants to know, because that's the people, what about the 12? Who, who do you think that I am? That's what he asked in verse 15. And So he says to them next, but who do you say that I am? He wants to see what they believe. I mean, the true mission of the Messiah is about to be revealed from his lips for the first time. And so they had better get his identity right first. Now, Peter is no Pope, but he is an example of true faith and strong leadership. And so he chimes up. He's the one who chimes in and answers first. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, clearly, Peter has a different take than the crowds. He says, first of Jesus, you're the Christ. Now, Christ is not a name. It's not his last name. It was a title that literally means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings, prophets were anointed with oil to signify God had chosen them to be his servants. But the Old Testament promised that God would send this this ultimate anointed one, a, a savior who would redeem his people. And so this word, Messiah or Christ, eventually became a title for Israel's Savior. This is the one who would redeem them from their bondage to sin and and deliver them. And Peter here, he's confessing first, Jesus is that Redeemer. You're you're the Savior. You're you're the Messiah, the Christ. You are that ultimate servant of God. He's confessing Jesus is that long-awaited one who will redeem his people first. Good. But Peter adds, that's not all. He says, you're also the Son of God. Of the living God. Now, to the Jews, Son of God was a title of deity. You see that evidence in John ten thirty three, that's where the Jews tried to stone Jesus for blasphemy because he made himself out to be God by the title Son of God. They said, "Why they were trying to kill him?" They said, "Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God." The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as God incarnate. But here Peter is confessing that. That he's confessing you're not just the Messiah. You're you're the divine Messiah. You are God with us. And Peter was right. Notice Jesus does not stop Peter. He does not rebuke Peter. He does not correct Peter at all. I mean, if, if this was untrue at all, this is like the highest form of blasphemy. But to the contrary, Jesus affirms what Peter says in verse 17. Jesus said to him, blessed are you. Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter's confession was, from a human perspective, the moment of great faith, but also from a divine perspective, this was a gift. Because Jesus says it was really the Father in heaven who opened Peter's eyes to finally see Jesus for who he really was and confess him for who he really was. And so it goes for all who, those whom the Lord summons to life. Now, with all this in mind, we, we finally get to our verse, verse 18. And Peter, uh, Jesus continues to say to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, back in verse 17, Jesus cited Peter's original name, Simon Bar-Jonah, which just means Simon, the son of Jonah. But at this point, Jesus had already renamed Simon to Peter. That happened a long time ago, way back in John chapter one. Jesus gave him the name Cephas in Aramaic. It's the same as Peter in the Greek. That word means stone. It shows how the Lord intended to use Peter from the beginning. Petros is the word in the Greek. And it's not talking about a boulder, but a smaller stone like a brick or stone you might throw that was rock solid nonetheless. And that, is how the Lord would use Peter in the church. He would be a rock-solid figure in the early church. That is true. You see that in Acts chapter 2? Peter is the one who first steps up with newfound boldness by the Holy Spirit to preach the first gospel message. But even still, you can't confuse Peter as being the foundation of the church, Peter himself. Jesus says next, upon this rock, I will build my church. But when you study the original Greek, in which this was written, you quickly learn Jesus uses a different word for rock. He's not used the same word as Peter's name, which was the other word for stone. He, here he uses Petra, which is related to that term Petros, but Petra refers to an unmovable rock. Now we're talking a boulder, a cliff, we're talking bedrock. Also, Petros for Peter, it's a masculine noun in the second person, Petra. For rock, it's a feminine noun in the third person. The point is, in the Greek, you can see Jesus is forming a play on words. That's the whole point. He's not calling Peter the foundation of the church, like the Catholics reason, as if Peter himself is somehow the, the bedrock for the whole church. No, Peter is Petros. He, he's a small stone. He would contribute to the building of the church. Yes, he, he'd be a very important early brick in the church. But the the Petra, the foundation on which the whole church rests, would be something else. The real connection, though, is that it is Peter who shows us what that foundation is. And so what is it? What is the foundation on which the church is built? And in the context, it can be nothing other than the antecedent, namely Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. That is the foundation of the church. God is building a church. We learned that this is a body of people who've been called out from the world to follow Christ. How does God build this church? Uh, It's not brick and mortar. It's also not through the sword, through conquest, through politics. Islam expanded through the sword. Catholicism expanded through politics. But the true church expands just one way. Just by faith. By this same confession of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. And that bedrock is is stronger than any government or army. Just to round out your understanding of the church's foundation, Ephesians 2 picks up on this. Ephesians 2.19 says that the church is God's household. Using the same metaphor, a house, a building. And on what is this house built? Ephesians 2.20 says that God's household has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you notice Jesus, again, is supreme. Not Peter, not the apostles. He's the cornerstone setting the the angles, the direction of the foundation and the church. Now, the foundation does include all the apostles and prophets. Peter is just one among equals here. But what makes the apostles and prophets so fundamental to the church? I mean, they're gone. There are no more apostles and prophets like that. But as we noted earlier, they are the ones whom the Lord used as his representatives to preach and then record his gospel in the New Testament. And it is that word that is the pillar of the church. With the close of the New Testament, the foundation was laid. That God finished giving the testimony of his son, the revelation of the Christ. That the words of life. Do you remember what the Apostle John said about his gospel and his conclusion? His words could easily apply to the whole New Testament. Where he says this, John 20, 31. He's talking about his writing. He said, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. You see, it's this revelation of Jesus as the Christ. And the son of God, that is the foundation of the church, this people. And it's on this foundation, Christ is calling out this people. Every time someone comes to have the same genuine confession as Peter, that Jesus is the Christ and the son of God, they have faith in him. Another brick is added on top of this foundation. Just brick by brick, layer by layer, a God by faith is calling this people to himself. And he's building a spiritual house. Just like Ephesians 2, 21 says that we are those stones. We are being fitted together into a dwelling place for God. God is a great architect here and he's he's erecting a dwelling place for his spirit. But again, we're not talking about an ordinary building. This is a spiritual house, a body of believers. Jesus as head makes it possible. He redeemed these people with his own blood. And look, Peter himself understood all this. He, he never saw himself as the bedrock of the church. Rather, you go again to First Peter, Second Peter. He understood that rather all of us are living stones in God's household. Jesus is the cornerstone. Who are you? First Peter 2.5. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're part of that house. You're, you're a brick in the, in the wall. And that foundation is his word. The New Testament teaches, in addition to this, as Peter mentioned, that the priesthood of all believers, that not only are you part of this spiritual house, you're also a priest. All believers are called priests of the living God. What's the main function of priests? The number one job is to offer up sacrifices. Now, we've already been bought by the finished sacrifice of Christ. So all that's left for us to offer are the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And that's what we do to the glory of God. The more you think about it, I know these are familiar truths, but this church that Christ is building is a marvelous thing. Maybe you came in here this morning with a low view of the church. Maybe you fell into the trap of thinking of the church like an event, a Sunday morning activity, a building But really no building, none of the pictures we saw can can compare to the majesty of this people that God is redeeming, calling to himself, interlocking together like a, a wise master builder, fitting them into his house. I mean, all by grace, we get to be made into God's house. And by faith, we get to dwell with God and his son and his spirit forever. Because indeed, the real church The Lord is building. It's going to last forever. And that brings us to one last question. That emerges from this verse. What is the hope of the church? Number four. What is the hope of the church? One more question. We need to answer that this verse prompts. What is the hope of the church? Again, this is all reminder. You know, the answer is life eternal. But what Jesus says next takes God's plans for the church even further Go back to verse 18. He adds one last phrase at the end. He says that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Speaking of his church. Now this phrase suffers from misinterpretation or rather I should say mistranslation quite often. Some translations have this as the gates of hell. That's very misleading. This leads people to believe that Jesus is saying the powers of hell will never overpower the church. Now look. That's true. Like we already know that's true. Satan and demons oppose Christ, oppose his church, but they will never prevail over it. We all agree that's true. That's just not what he's saying in this verse. The term gates is the first clue. A gate is not a weapon of warfare. It's a means of security. You use a gate to keep something in or or keep something out. And more significantly, you don't have the term for hell here, but the term Hades which corresponds to Sheol in Hebrew. In the Jewish mind, Hades simply refers to the place of the dead. It's not talking about what we would call like the eternal hell. Hades is not that place. Rather, Sheol or Hades simply refers to the grave. It's a euphemism for for death. It's the place of the dead. It's barred shut by gates. And so the gates of Hades trap everyone inside that's how they thought of death. Like when you die, you go in, you don't come out, Who can ascend from Sheol? Who can rise from the grave? Humanly speaking, no one. And so this phrase, gates of Hades, it's very simply just a metaphor for death. It's talking about death itself. But here, Jesus is saying that the gates of Hades, they're, they're not as invincible as you once thought They can't overpower or prevail against the church. So in other words, he's saying that not even death can stop Jesus from building his church. Not even death can keep this called out people from God. But again, we we think of death, death prevails over everything, right? I mean, death, it's the end of the line. It's the end of all your dreams, all your plans. Just death is the end, but not God's plans, And Jesus, as the divine Messiah, he was going to conquer sin, Satan, and death itself. How? Through his own death and resurrection. This is now where the identity of the Messiah and the mission of the Messiah intersect, which he was about to reveal to them, again, for the first time. Look at verse 21 in Matthew 16. Right after this little interchange, he says, or rather, uh, Matthew says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is how Jesus would rescue us. The wages of sin is death. And so long as as we have a sin debt before him, we must be separated from him. We can be no dwelling place for him. We will be cast out into hades and then later hell forever but on the cross jesus paid our sin debt in full as we sang this morning he 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 drank the wrath he, he suffered the wrath that was due us and then rising from the dead and he proved that he paid in full that death could not hold him he could open that that gate proving his righteousness was greater than our sin And now when we believe in him, that all of that work is transferred to our account. We are reckoned as righteous. Our sin debt is wiped out, which means that death has no claim on us anymore either. And this this is how we can be saved and redeemed from an eternal death. Listen to Revelation one eighteen; just one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible when you think about it. Revelation one eighteen, it's where Jesus says, I am the living one and I was dead, And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You're paying the penalty for our sin, then rising from the dead. Jesus now has the authority just to release captives at will whenever he wants. He holds the keys to Hades, i.e. death. He has power over the grave. Like what can stop that? What, What force can stop that? If this Jesus has determined to call out a people to himself, who can oppose him? Who can oppose this one? You have to think about the massive implications of this truth. We know the world has never been friendly to the true church. The darkness hates the light, seeks to put it out. How they treated our master is how they're going to treat us. And also the God of this world, the devil, is working with them. In America, things are getting darker The culture is turning more against the church. Persecution is rising. Does that make you afraid? Do you ever fear for the church? Well, you don't need to. No force can even threaten Christ's true church. Look, what if tomorrow the American government decided to tear down every church building? That type of thing happens in China. Would you say that's the world prevailing over the church? No, that's the world prevailing over brick and mortar, but the church is not a building. The Lord might even use that type of persecution to build his church even more. What's the worst they can do? Kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. So in Matthew 10, didn't Jesus say, don't fear them. That's like the worst they can do, but your soul is secure in Christ if you know him. So rather he says, fear the Lord and trust the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the chief shepherd, the head and the foundation. So just trust him to, to gather his people, to preserve his people, to return for his people, and in the end, to resurrect his people. Many Christians throughout church history have actually faced like real martyrdom. But if church history has taught us anything, those are the times when God actually grows his church the most it's often been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Who would do that though? Who, who would pay the ultimate price of their life just for their allegiance to Jesus? The answer is only those like Peter. Those whom flesh and blood is not revealed, but God the Father has revealed that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is the Son of God, the Savior, your only hope. Again, this this confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior is the unshakable foundation of the church. Uh, You make this confession in in genuine faith, you have a master who now holds the keys of life and death. And so if you're on his side, like what's there to fear? What, What is left to fear? In him, we have hope in life and even death. Altogether, Matthew 16, 18 provides us with with massive promises that carry massive implications. I mean, just look at the kind of assurance we gain as the church, as members of this church. The hope we have is not based on our strength. We are more like Peter. We're little stones. Yeah, God is using us. He can use us. But we are not the ones assuring the church of its success. That that's not up to us. Rather, it's the Lord Jesus who will ultimately build his church, and preserve his church. You can count on that. He, he already died for it. He rose for it. He will return for it. He poured the foundation with his own blood. I mean, nothing is going to stop him from completing this work, no matter what you see going on in the world around you. It's no concern to God. And he shares us here that the gates of Hades will not overpower it, that, that even death is not an obstacle to God's plans. He's building his church in spite of death, the father intends for the people of God to dwell in the place of God with the son of God forever. And yeah, we're, we're all going to die. We all taste that first death as the wages of the curse, but still not even that death can separate us from God's eternal plans. Though we taste death in this life, like Jesus said to Martha in John 10 or John eleven twenty five twenty six, 26, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So how do you stop that? I mean, this world is still under the power of the devil for now, and both the world and the devil hate God, hate his church. That, that's why they killed Jesus. And so how do you think they're, they're going to treat the church? But still, like how do you stop a people who have overcome death? How do you defeat an enemy where even killing them doesn't stop them, does not defeat them? That is the assurance we have that even death is no threat to the church, the people God is building. But this hope only belongs to those who are in the church. And that really has to be our ultimate question this morning for all of us to answer. Are you in the church? Are you in this church? It's one thing to learn about the church. It's another to be in it. And that really is the most important question you personally need to answer. Are you in this church? not talking about Berean church anymore. Entering a church building does not make you part of the church. Becoming a local church member does not make you part of the church. Attending church gatherings does not make you a part of the church. There's only one way in. There's only one door. That door is Christ. And you enter by this saving confession of faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so you, likewise, must genuinely confess Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He's Lord, he's Savior, he's God, he's King. He's the only hope you have to be forgiven of all of your sins and granted eternal life. So have you turned away from your sin, your self-will, your rebellion, and just fled to this Jesus, seeking his mercy, confessing him as your only hope, your only savior. Do that like Peter and you will live. But understand this saving faith requires more than your lips. It requires your whole life. How about we just let Jesus himself define what this saving faith really looks like? And he tells us it looks like submitting your entire life to him. Just to finish, look down at verse 24 of Matthew 16. What he'll say to them a little later. Matthew sixteen twenty-four. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, as priests, the real sacrifice we offer is What? It's our entire lives on the altar to the Lord, given to his glory, given to his purposes. If you hear this good shepherd calling you today, do not close your ears and do not harden your heart. Repent, believe in him, his sheep, hear his voice. They know him, they follow him. And so follow Jesus today and enter by faith this true, eternal, unshakable church he is building. Let's make that our prayer. Our Father in heaven, that is our prayer that that we are all secure in your church. We thank you for the work you have done through your son and and producing and procuring a people for yourself. All by your grace. As you read this morning, Ephesians 2, just simply in your love and your mercy, you you called this people out, raised us up with Christ, even seated us with him in the heavenly places. And we thank you that we are the recipients of that saving grace, apart from which we all would be lost and, and cast out separated by the gates of, of death and eternal death forever. So I pray even as we reflect on unfamiliar truths about the church, it stirs our heart to be thankful for your great grace through your son who died and rose for us. This son who is not merely a man, but the divine man, and the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the first, the last, and our only hope. And for those who, who may not know him this morning, who come to hear of him and have encountered him through your word, I pray that you, not flesh and blood, but you yourself would reveal to them, even right now, and open their hearts to to confess, to see what well, we see—that He really is the hope and the only one. For those of us, uh, those of us who have made that confession, we pray you, you build it, you build us up, edify us as you're building your people, strengthen our faith. Though the world is dark and and can be appear threatening, give us just the the peace that comes from the hope and the assurance we have that our head our master and savior, he will finish what he started. He is building this church. He is raising the dead. Spiritually, physically, he will finish. We are safe in him. and May we simply follow him. Whatever it costs, may we pick up our crosses, follow him daily as we live for his purposes in this age. We do this for his glory as those bought by him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.